So we've tried to focus in on, on areas where knowing something and, and being able to confidently do it is the metric of success. And so um, the, the leading indicator of being able to actually do something, which is something that's gonna have to be observed on the job in most cases, is if somebody is, is confident in their mindset around it and, and their, their self, um, the, sort of their, the, the story they tell themselves about their ability to do it will be more predictive um, than just like, could you answer a multiple choice question? So- Hello and welcome to the Making Better podcast, where we talk about how to make ourselves, our teams, and our organizations better. Whether you are a business owner, a manager, or a learning and development professional, this show will give you actionable insights of how to improve your own performance and the performance of those around you. Our guest today is Ryan Findlay. Ryan is a strategist, product leader, designer, and lifelong educator. He is currently the chief learning strategist at Learn to Win, a learning platform focused on delivering more actionable and focused learning experiences. In today's discussion, we touch on Ryan's time leading learning programs in Africa and what technology can do to improve learning outcomes. Before we get into the discussion, I want to remind you that if this is your first time watching the show, I highly recommend you subscribe so that you never miss a future episode. And if you're already subscribed, then I would ask that you share this show with at least one other person because that is how we grow. I can't tell you how much it means to me. And so with that, let's get into the discussion. Ryan, welcome to the Making Better podcast. How are you doing today? Thanks. Good. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's good to connect in this way. I guess we've been chatting for, I don't know, emailing, chatting for almost a couple of years by now. Um, so it's fun to connect on. Yeah, it's been a little while on, on your show. Uh, but yeah, I'm doing good. Yeah. Excellent. That's good. Yeah. And we even got to meet in person once yeah, and right. chat about some stuff, which was great. Um, chips, yeah, think. this is one of yeah, exactly. This is one of those situations where the um, yeah the the online relationship came into an IRL relationship a, a little bit. So yeah. yeah, it's always it's always great to chat with you. I, I gave a little bit of an intro to the listeners beforehand, but I think we got to start with anybody who looks you up on LinkedIn is going to see you spent a bunch of time doing work in Africa and learning in Africa, yeah. and that's a very different you know direction for a lot of people to come from. What did you? how did you get involved with that and and what did you learn there? Yeah. Um, it really was a rich season of my career. It was almost 10 years of, um, working in or, um, kind of on, on different projects, um, in Africa. So it was, it was a huge chunk of, uh, of my life and, and of my career, uh, actually started the, my first, uh, foray into working on the continent was through a, of all things, an apparel company. Uh, a couple of friends and I started, and um, we wanted to be a social business, kind of growing in Africa, Great. cutting, sewing, uh, printing, and, and shipping from the continent, um, and really trying to like kind of rebuild uh, what, what was once a pretty robust industrial base on the continent. Uh, and they kind of went through, they had a rust belt kind of situation like we did in the U S and a lot of, a lot of the manufacturing jobs went to Southeast Asia. And, uh, so we were, you know, it was almost like a, at first it was kind of an academic problem. Like, could you, could you just like reestablish those, those factories and, you know, those sort of, um, shipping, 
uh, and logistics sort of pieces and, and rebuild those industries. And uh, what we found out through a couple of years of this pilot project was you was you could, but the the biggest problem we had was when we got to a port, um, it was very cost ex- it was very time ex- ex- um, uh, <laughs> what was I looking for? It was very time uh, and and dollar costly to get things from an African port to the U S which was one of our biggest markets to sell. Um, so you can make a cheaper shirt or, or sweatshirt or whatever in Africa, if it's all African cotton and you kind of aren't shipping it all over the world. The problem is that by the time it gets to the U S um, because of the, of the transportation costs, um, just being so astronomical that now you're selling something at 1.5 or two X, what it would cost from Southeast, Southeast Asia, China is, is that just because there aren't the same as many established channels? Like there's just not as much traffic going that direction. Yeah. So the costs aren't as low. Yeah. That's, I mean, the biggest one is, is basically that, like you can put it on a plane and have it in two days, but now a $3 shirt, you know, what might be a cost $3 yeah. is now nine bucks. Um, cause totally. you just had to, you know, had to, uh, absorb that cost. You could put it on a ship and that maybe only adds like a dollar or something to the cost, but you're not going to see it for sometimes six weeks. Cause what the, a lot of times the lady shipping lines works work is that they've got a box and they're saying, okay, we're going to fill this box with whatever needs to get imported to the U S and your box doesn't leave until it's full. So mm-hmm. you could be the first person into that box with your, with your, you know, all your shirts mm-hmm. and sweatshirts and whatever else. And it could just sit there and they will make no promises about when that thing will get filled up because for them, it doesn't make sense to, to mm. ship an empty or half empty box. So you're counting on all these other people to fill it with, you know, with pottery mm-hmm. or with, yeah, with, yeah. It, you know, anything they're making on the continent. Um, and you're hopeful that everyone will do it in this short period of time so that you can get your goods. But at least in these really long la- um, lead times and you have no predictability around your, uh, your uh, you know, your um, like when things will come in or when you can then start yeah. advertising them and yeah. printing them and all these things. So it gets, yeah. it ended yeah. up being a lot more complex than I had any idea. But through that, I, I fell in love with um, just working with the different cultures and, and variety of um, just the, just the nuance of, of working in Africa. And that led to me mm-hmm. going and taking a job um, teaching how to uh, teaching kids, how to build businesses and, um, and pursue entrepreneurial ventures in Africa. And so that was, uh, I was teaching at a really cool school down there called African Leadership Academy, uh, which I still think is one of the coolest places in the world. Um, the best and brightest from all over Africa. Uh, these kids are 16 to 18 and all of them who are really chosen because they want to change the face of the continent. And so I was really uh, very lucky and blessed to get to, to teach there for a couple of years. That's awesome. So did you, I noticed one of your last locations, at least what you have on LinkedIn was on Mauritius. Yeah. Did you live there? Yeah. I got to live in Mauritius for, uh, That's we were there so about cool. a year and a quarter, maybe almost a year and a half. Okay. Yeah. So that was okay. one of my last yeah. stops. So, yeah. For anybody who doesn't know, make sure to look it up on the map. Cause it's out, it's kind of out in the middle of the Indian ocean. The only reason I know about it is because there's a, there's like a satellite communication station out there. And so on every SpaceX launch, something like, you know, 20 minutes after launch, there's always signal acquisition Mauritius as a call out <laughs> as, it, as it gets over the island. That's so um, funny. I didn't so, know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. If you watch a SpaceX launch, almost every one, there's, oh, that's <laughs> it cool. calls it out in there. I didn't know that. There's a, yeah. it's, it's big, it's well known in the military community because there's a big yeah. thing out there that nobody can, can know, sure. but 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. Awesome. Awesome. So that's really, that's really neat. I, I can't even, I mean, that had to have been just such an inspiring kind of experience to be doing that kind of work out there. I mean, how did, yeah, what, yeah, it must've been, right? It was, I mean, I was, I was just working with the most incredible people. Um, the kids were amazing. The, uh, my colleagues were, were just always so, um, so, so invested, so passionate, so, so intelligent. Everybody that worked there could have been, you know, doing any other job. I, I mean, and by, I, but I yeah. mean like, they're just, by that, I mean, they were just like so incredibly talented at what they did. And the fact that everyone took a pay cut and, you know, sort of just like a, uh, a left turn to go to work at the school or with this kind of sister, um, sister organizations. And, uh, because of that, it was, it was just the, the cream of the crop when it came to the people I was working with and the kind of stuff that we have to do every day. And, you know, I was also there just, a, I was there at an opportune time when <clears throat> one of our founders wanted to, to create a new college out of thin air. And so I got to be there, you know, working on the founding of a college, which most people just aren't lucky enough to be in the right place, right yeah. time to do. And then the founding of a, of an MBA program and then a, an undergraduate degree program. I was just in the, you know, sort of right place, right time for so many cool things that I, that were just happening. And I, I just got to be involved because I was cause I was there, but, um, yeah, it was, it was the kind of thing where for those years, I, I, I barely register it as, as work. It was really just kind of like, yeah. you know, uh, different ways to like kind of live out a, a passion and, and, uh, kind of a, a vigor for, for doing good things in the world. Yeah. That's, that's awesome. So then you went from there to learn to win, yeah. which is a learning technology platform. How did, how did that come about? How did that move come about? Yeah. Um, actually, so one of the, one of the guys I was working with at, um, ALA, which was the high school and ALU, which was the university, um, he and I stayed in touch and, and we were working together in, in, uh, we were in together in Mauritius one time and we were talking about what we were learning at the university level, which was, you know, we were trying to have a high uh, access, low cost university, which meant we wanted to have a quarter of a million students at all times across 25 countries um, or, or campuses at least. Uh, and we wanted to do a whole college degree for like 10 to $15,000 total, not per year total. Yeah. And the way yeah. you do that, the only way you get anywhere close to doing that is if you have a, a really strong technology that helps, um, you know, you can basically take a lot of your recurring costs and, and push it to the technology. Um, of course, it's things like, you know, student information systems and registrar and stuff like that, that you need to automate admissions things, some of those things. But um, it got to the point where like we realized, okay, we've really got to um, somehow automate the learning. And uh, so we were talking about, you know, Andrew and I were just talking about, wow, if you could, if you could really automate learning at the university level, not, not entirely taking professors out or anything like that, but um, use technology in ways that was, you know, where technology is effective and use humans where humans are effective. Um, if you can build a tool like that, like a, like a Duolingo, but for a whole college degree, all things, well, yeah. wow that seems like that would be a, that solves a big problem in the world, right? Not just for us at ALU, yeah. 
but for other colleges and wow, what, you know, who, for who else, who else could, you know, benefit from that, uh, companies, et cetera. And, uh, so we were just kind of just literally just driving through sugarcane fields, just kind of spitballing ideas and things. Um, and, uh, he just kind of had this line of like, you know, yeah, my buddy Sasha and I, Andrew went to North Carolina and, and his buddy Sasha played basketball there and said like, oh, it's, you know, he, he always found it. It was like really hard to learn the, the playbook at, um, this university, uh, you know, great basketball program, really complicated playbook. And he was like, you know, they, they talked about like, what if there was an app to like help players learn their, their playbook? And I was like, oh, that actually would be really fun to work on. Um, it's kind of a micro version of that same problem. Uh, and I was like, if you guys ever work on that, let me know. Cause that would be fun. And like six months later, they called me and they're like, Hey, we're getting a working group together. If you want to join in. And so we started doing nights and weekends, kicking around PowerPoints and, you know, mock-ups and things like that. And, uh, uh, yeah, a couple, you know, within a year we had an MVP and, um, Andrew and Sasha were off to the races at Stanford, um, both like selling, but also, you know, getting connections in the, in the, in the Silicon Valley area. And, um, pretty soon Andrew called me and he's like, Hey, so we just got, a big chunk of funding. We're in the middle of grad school. Like, could you come, could you leave Mauritius and ALU and, and come, come get, learn to win going. And, uh, I was like, yeah, let's do it. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, we, I, I ended up joining full time in early 2020, um, brought the, my wife and, um, soon to be baby girl over to Bay area in uh, in early 2020. And we started running learn to win. Uh, that's when I was working on learn to win full time. So you moved to the Bay area in early 2020. That must've been an experience right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, everyone has their own, everyone has their own story around it. Um, but for me, uh, you know, landing in a, in a new, new place. I hadn't lived in the Bay area before, uh, yeah. just about to have a baby trying to get a, a startup off the ground was, was definitely, a you know, it was crazy for me, that, ver- that version of it. I'm and, sure. uh, yeah, we had a, an interesting, um, challenging, but also, uh, you know, also rewarding time in the Bay a couple years there. So, um, it was yeah, we, it's a it's an interesting. You, you've you decided to do the same like trial by fire that my wife and I did when we because we had our first child, moved across the state, and I left my and I cha- left the military all at the same time. It's, yeah. So it's, that's yours was probably yours. You were probably one of the few people I've met that did a more extreme version <laughs> of of doing all three things at once because <laughs> you didn't just move across a state; you moved halfway around the world. So new job, well done. new country, <laughs> which is my old country. Yeah, new new yeah family edition. It was a lot. It was a lot. Yeah, that is a lot. Wow. Well, you made you made it through. I'm sure you've learned a lot. It's neat that. You focused on that technology piece, which I think is so interesting. You know, when so now I'm imagining you got to know you've gotten to know quite a bit about the learning technology space and what it means for education. You know, you highlighted how that technology piece is a really key piece for certainly enabling you know your original envision in higher ed, but it's the same thing that's true in corporations. Yeah. 
how have you found, like, what have you seen that things that need to change about learning technology in order to enable better learning inside organizations? Yeah, it's a really good question. I think, um, one of the things that we, that we at learn to win really quickly sort of gravitated towards was, was the value of uh, data in, in learning tech and, and just okay. how, from our standpoint, the, there was a serious lack of, of insight from the data that was available in a lot of legacy tools. And I think, you know, to, to be fair, I think a lot of, um, early, early days of, of learning technology were really driven by like SCORM formats and, and, and things yep. like that, as well as, um, you know, that's sort of on the, uh, on one side and on the other side was sort of ERP, SIS or HRIS systems or things that, um, would evolve into LMSs, but, you know, just sort of yep. had these certain restrictions that came from being, um, really just like enterprise, they were meant to be enterprise, um, tools, not learning tools, right. They were, they sure. were the, for the yep. benefit of the organization, not for the learner. Um, and so that's yeah. sort of like these, these two insights around this was, this was built for the company and not the learner. And this was built without the ability to collect any meaningful data around what is, where are students getting stuck? Um, what content is effective, ineffective, um, or, you know, where are the learning gaps that people could target and, and practice, uh, you know, remediation on and then and move past. And these, so these are some of the things that we were seeing early on that um, they just weren't out there. And, and funny enough, it was, it was some of our early customers in sports and military that helped us realize that because they're the ones who were most interested in like, okay, so I did this. How do I know if it worked? Which it seems like an obvious sure. question a lot of times, but it, yeah. but if you look at the tools that a lot of learning, um, a lot of, you know, learning designers or, or CLOs or whatever we're, we're dealing with, it was the kinds of data that you get back was, well, they did it or they didn't do it, or they got a 90% yeah. or they got a, you know, a fail, or it took them 22 minutes. And these things were not, you could maybe try to make them proxies for, was it worth doing this? What should I take from these analytics? But, but a lot of times they were just like, it was almost like they were meant to count something else, which was completion basically and yeah. compliance. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you, like you mentioned before, since a lot of this stuff kind of evolved from existing HR tech or organizational tech, yeah. it was, yeah, it really is very process driven yeah. rather than outcome driven. Yeah, totally. Um, which is, yeah, an interesting way to, an interesting way to think about it. Yeah. And, and, and no, and no shade, right. For totally. people yeah, were dealing totally. with, with what they had. And, and like, when I look at the things that people were creating with, you know, with an articulate or something like that, these like really robust learning experiences. And then you look at what was possible to get on the back end of that. And it's just like, there's such a mismatch with what, yeah. you know, the formats out there allowed for. And, and I know that's, that some of that's evolved with, um, with XAPI and things like that. But, um, just thinking about the legacy of these things was still very much archaic and, and not built around, 
I need data to make a decision. It's like learning was a was just a like a thing to do versus like a strategic yeah. function, right? And and I think that's sort of philosophically how we see um, learning in organizations as using it as a as a strategic function, a thing that could be even like a, a leading indicator or a predictor of how someone might do, and you know, um, not in a way that's like um, going to uh, going to like make predictions of like this person can't do their job. And so, you know, bad things happen to them. It's more like, Hey, if you're a manager and, and we think there's a 30% chance that, um, that people don't know how to run an emergency procedure or something, like if you're on a, on a medical floor and, and there's 30% chance that not everybody knows how to run a code blue, you could just say like, Hey, let's take three minutes at the beginning of the shift and just make sure that we cover code blue again, or, you know, here yeah. are the emergency exits, or um, here's what you do if you're if you're uh, you know your uh, your rudder isn't working, or or your your uh, uh, I don't know this 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 sort of machine, your mid surgery, and this sort of thing just doesn't work anymore. What then should we do? And and so we think there's a there's a really good there's a world in which learning and and assessment is is on the front end of these things and is actually a contributor yeah. to to getting out ahead of mistakes or or just compromising situations yeah and because I, I don't know how much you've dove into you mentioned xapi how much you've dove into that or that world because i mean i know from my perspective i feel like one of the reasons there's probably many but one of the reasons why xapi has had trouble gaining traction and wide usage is kind of because it's such a wide open field. Yeah. Like you can really do anything. anything. Yeah. With it. You can track whatever you want. And so it's just like, if I'm a learning designer and all I've ever you know, done is completions and maybe score percentages, then it's almost too much. Yeah. Whereas it feels like with Learn to Win, you all sent at least at least the last time I saw it, you all centered in on this idea of confidence, yeah. confidence of the learner, yeah. where that was the big additional data point that they're, you're using as a strong proxy mm -hmm. to do they do they truly understand it and asking them just how confident are you in your knowledge? Um, is that paring down like how is that process done? Is that part of the reason why you selected it to kind of just like eliminate? the these many choices yeah you're, you're totally right i mean xapi is is amazing in that way and and also probably just kind of like paralyzing in that way because you know yeah i mean if you're in the if you're in the in the navy or the air force like there's maybe a lot of things you might want to track from simulators and from you know different yeah. things but like most people there are only a couple extra things they might want to but then it can also get complicated and and so i think it's it's what well, it's um, there's a lot possible there's still uh, there's not necessarily clarity around it or, or strategic thinking around it always and and i think it'll be emerging but it's um it's just it's murky uh, what we've done with yeah. that is we've said okay well what what's one of the most important things that we can capture very easily and and one of those things is we think confidence uh, because in almost every field that we work in the ability to perform the work is is incredibly imp important it's like we don't work we're not we don't really serve or industries where you want people to know trivia <laughs> and and i i, yeah. I would i'm not a compliance tool no <laughs> and i would challenge that like most people outside of like compliance laws most companies do not have the time or capacity for trivia it's just like it's something yes. that's just like has kind of happened because 
Well, yes. you know, trivia is something we could count. And if somebody knows what year the company was founded, well, I could give you a quiz on that. And <laughs> okay, yeah, they know that the, found, the company was founded in 2001, but does that help them do their job, right? Not usually. So we've tried to focus in on, on areas where knowing something and, and being able to confidently do it is the metric of success. And so um, the, the leading indicator of being able to actually do something, which is something that's going to have to be observed on the job in most cases, is if somebody is, is confident in their mindset around it and, and their, their self, um, the, sort of their, the, self, the story they tell themselves about their ability to do it will be more predictive um, than just like, could you answer a multiple choice question? So um, yeah. the, with our asking people, not only what their what their answer is, but how confident they are in their answer. We're kind of able to add the second dimension of learning uh, data that hasn't existed in you know for most time and, and, and in most places. Yeah. Um, it it gives you that second place to say, okay, well they they know it, but they don't think that they know it, right? Which is a very different problem. It's a very different problem from somebody who who doesn't know the answer, and and they're one hundred percent sure that they know it. Right. Those are like yeah. two different humans, basically. But if you yeah. but if you imagine like your average classroom, um, that's just like a right answer and a wrong answer. You don't you don't necessarily see it with the color. But when you see somebody who's right, but they they don't they didn't even know that. And they, somebody who's wrong, mm -hmm. but they believed it in their heart and their soul. You, you can just imagine those two people in your mind and being like, oh, man, I need to put them in different corners of the room and do totally different um, take totally different steps with them to yeah. get them to where they need to be, which is everyone wants their learners to be confidently correct. And so, it, it, yeah. And it, it, you reminded me of Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets, mm -hmm. and uh, she's a former professional poker player. And she always talks about how you can be right for the wrong reasons <laughs> and you can be wrong for the right reasons. Like you can get something wrong, but still, you were thinking the right way when you got it wrong. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, yeah, that's a very good, that's a very good analogy. Um, I see a lot of connections to poker there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But yeah. yeah it's when, so, you, when you start to start to see that it's like, wow. Okay. That actually is a really helpful dimension. Um, yeah. To, to knowing what then should I do with this person? Right. Cause the right and the wrong answer mm -hmm. is just the first step what comes next is, is what's really valuable. And again, we're trying to march these people along to being, to being um, confidently correct and able to do that job uh, and know that they could do whatever job is required of them. Yeah. And, it, and I, I love that approach really because it, it just accepts the fact that let's be clear, like most jobs actually though, what we ultimately, so we ultimately care about, can somebody do a thing? And most things are just going to be too complicated for you to try to stuff into a learning platform and actually test. You got to go have them do it, watch them. So you, so we're almost kind of just assuming that's something that's gonna have to happen, be tested on the job. So what's the closest corollary we can get to that? It's not trivia. It's not multiple choice questions. It's just. Do you feel confident that you're going to be able to do this? Yes or no? Um, yeah. You know, or, or how, not yes or no, but you know, the, the whole scale there. I, lo I, I love yeah. that approach. Yeah. So, so then we've, we've briefly talked about AI a little bit in past conversations. Yeah. I know you're, you're thinking a little bit about it because I do think AI opens up 
a lot more possibilities with this idea of really testing people's understanding because now instead of a you know instead of a multiple choice question you can potentially maybe not quite yet but you can potentially create a scenario where you do ask somebody like write you know tell us your sales pitch and then yeah. they speak it and then the ai can judge them in a realistic way um yeah. how are you starting to think about AI, what AI is going to, how AI is going to affect learning technology in that assessment part of it. Cause there's the whole creation piece, which a lot yeah. of people are, are utilizing. How do you see it affecting the, the assessment and the evaluation piece? Yeah, I think it's, I think that's, to be honest, more exciting than the creation stuff. Um, mm -hmm. There, there are really cool things on the creation side. And uh, what I do like about the creation side is um, I think you're going to be able to assess where somebody is and auto generate mm. questions that, mm. that get people up to where they need to be. Um, yep. And that, that will be cool. And that will be really effective. I think on the analytics side though, there's a lot that's going to be able to be learned about, like when you have enough data, I think you're going to be able to start making some really strong predictions um, or, or like very well-informed guesses about where are pockets of people who are ready for a promotion or who would make great mm. mentors or um, mm. people who are maybe um, they're not being fully utilized in the company and, and being able to identify that within the realm of learning, but but extrapolate it to the job or, or, you know, real world performance. Um, yeah. even somebody like, Hey, based on what we're seeing from, you know, if you've got like a fairly extensive, um, well, let's say you've got something like a financial plan or something where it's like a pretty extensive, uh, ramp up time to, to get somebody going. If you see somebody who's like really shoots out of the gates and, and you know, that for the last 50 people who've gone out like that, they've been top performing, uh, financial planners or something like it, why would yeah. HR not want to know about that? Right. Why would that person's manager yeah. not want to yeah. know about that? It seems like obvious to me that these, these things can start to be, um, predictors of and, and influencers of what happens in a person's career. And similarly, if you see somebody who's like struggling out the gate and you know, that, that 99% of people who start this way don't make it through, um, maybe there's a place to have a compassionate conversation early on there with that, that person to say like, Hey, we, we, we'd be happy to keep you around. We just want you to know that like, based on your trajectory, um, you may not, you may not make it in the way that you think, what adjustments can we make now to, to change your trajectory? Right. And someone might be like, Holy smokes, I didn't know that I was studying poorly or, um, that, you know, the, the first three weeks were so crucial. I can really double down now. Uh, I think there are other things you can start to do with um, looking at groups of people and being able to predict performance. The people who are leading here, by a long shot, in my opinion, are, are the, is the sales tech tools. Because yes. what they're yes. looking at is they're looking at all this data that's coming in from, you know, um, outreach to how many times are they, you know, doing kind of a pulse with with um, with sales leads, uh, with how confident are they on the phone all these things and, and, and as well as learning in some of the tools and they're starting to make predictions about what is the revenue that every rep is going to contribute and rolling that up to the level of a CRO or a VP of sales to say like, Hey, this region's about to miss because, um, these three people who are specializing on this product is about to miss. 
if you're in sales, like, yeah, it's easy to fire people, but it's hard to replace them. It'd be much easier if you can mm -hmm. to sort of do some targeted training. And if you can be highlighted, if that can be highlighted for you, um, five weeks before the quarter is over versus three weeks after the quarter is over, that is incredibly valuable. And I think that's why yeah. these things are happening in sales first, because there's just so much money to, to gain or to lose. But um, I can see that stuff, th those kinds of things trickling into learning tech everywhere. And I really see an eventual like merging of, of learning tech and, and enterprise software of, of all sorts, because I think, um, again, I do think there's value in the predictive nature of what uh, what people know and, and can demonstrate in learning realms and how that translates to actual performance. Yeah, I agree. I was actually on a call. I'm, I'm part of the planning committee for ATD Technology, and we were talking yes. about AI and how to have like a conversation around AI. And uh, we were just kind of struggling of like how how to have a better conversation or a different conversation than what is commonly happening at a lot of conferences because it's so new. It's kind of just like, oh, it's this big thing. We don't really know how it's going to affect us, or it's very focused on generative AI. And yet, and I and I think it's just because ultimately we we might fight it, but learning isn't. There's a lot of money in learning. You know that like you, you started a learning tech company, so there is money in learning. Sure. but it is dwarfed by the money in like sales or, or places like that, you know? Sure. And so I do think you're hundred percent right that that's the place to look for advances in utilizing this stuff. Um, yep. And it's, it's certainly gonna be, it's the closest corollary to how we're gonna use it. Um, yeah, I hundred percent agree with that. That's awesome. Yeah, and sales enablement tools are are amazing if you look at what they can do with yeah. like pitch practice, yeah. role plays. I mean, all yes. these things are being automated yes. because for them it's so expensive um, to yes. to have a wa a rep wash out or um, to 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 fly everybody to Vegas. Like, yeah, the reps loved it, but what did you get out of it? It's much more productive to say, hey, take three hours of an afternoon and and do work on your pitch for the next quarter's big product launch. Um, and then managers are getting to see the roll up of, of how much talk time did people have or how confidently could they speak to the new tools or releases. And, and, oh my gosh, like the data around that and, and the ability of a, of a sales leader to make uh, pinpointed decisions and, and corrections based off that is just unreal. It's a good point. I could, I can see a world where sales enablement tools really leapfrog into a lot of learning tech because my biggest problem with sales enablement tools historically when I've looked at them for from a core learning perspective is that they just tend to have a different expectation for like learning person the ratio of learning personnel to learners right mm -hmm. you know very you know I've seen plenty of sales you know when you look at the sales enablement team versus the sales team you know it might be one to ten or one to twenty or, or you know on a high end, maybe like one to 50. Whereas in the broader corporate learning world, yeah. it's like one to a thousand. 10x that, yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> exactly. And and so the, the scaling tools weren't there in the enablement tech, but those are probably the things that, but when they build AI into it, I can imagine a world where all those things that weren't scalable before become very scalable. Um, which could solve a lot of those problems. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I'm I, I want to be respectful I of your. Think, yeah. Oh no! Please, Sorry, please go ahead. Finish your answer. No, I'm just saying. Like, I, yeah. I, I've reviewed many sales enablement tools, and and 
Um, some are clearly better than others, but there are a couple where I'm just I'm very impressed with what they're doing from a learning standpoint. And mm-hmm. uh, I could even see them making legitimate plays in the in you know to 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 compete with uh, LMSs very soon. Yep. Yeah. No. Totally. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. So I want to finish this up. I think this has been a great, really interesting conversation on kind of the learning tech front. Um, we'll usually finish up with three questions with cool. uh, pre- kind of rapid fire questions. And so the first one yep. is, what is one book or podcast that someone should read or listen to and why? Um, it's been a great, it's been a great read. Uh, it's called What's Our Problem? And yep. it's a really interesting sort of like meta analysis of like what's going on in society. Uh, so Tim Urban is the author. Um, just like a really interesting read from, you know, from a very like zoomed out perspective. He's kind of like a social commentator. Uh, I think he has like other formal training as like a software guy or something, but um, has been writing. Okay. I think it's wait, but why for, for a very long time oh, wow. and just take these long form breakdowns of like why is this like this you know and and just going into like all the facets of it so really interesting writing and in in this he sort of starts to unpack of like you know what are we seeing in 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 our world in the u.s and um, he talks a lot mostly about the u.s but um what we could do to sort of start getting back to maybe where i think a lot of people would like to be yeah i've um, listened to a lot of interviews with him and where he talks about the book and talks about kind of the larger concept of, you know, if, if all of human history, if, if of modern human history was, I think he uses like a 500 page book, you know, and yeah. the Declaration of Independence was written like two thirds of the way down the last page <laughs> or something, yeah. something crazy yeah. like that. Yeah, this perspective you know? of like all the things that have happened and how like, we, you know, he just has like this visual of like all these boxes of time and it's like you only get to the very bottom of all these boxes and it's like you know the first evidence of human art or something and it's just like holy smokes yeah. like this is the last yes tenth of this page you know or, or hundredth of this page yes. almost and then and then you start to think about like civil rights movement and and you know all these things that have happened in like the last like whatever however many years for us are just like in the scheme of of human of known human history is like it's just like it, you it's in, you, a line you couldn't even see on the page um, and just yeah. sort of putting things yeah. in perspective is really interesting. Yeah, super interesting. Awesome. That's a great one. Okay. Yeah. Um, second question. What is one skill that has helped you most succeed in your life? I think resourcefulness is one of my favorite like go-to skills um, yeah. because it just sort of like, you know, you're, you're sort of never stuck if you're resourceful. There's always some like maneuvering or some way to just like think anew about a problem or a, a limitation or something. And so I think that's, if you can just like, I don't, and I don't even know, I'd love to figure out how to like cultivate that in my kids. But um, I think resourcefulness is one of those skills that I've just benefited from time and again. Awesome. That's a, that's a great one. Uh, and then final question that I think we've kind of touched on this a little bit throughout the episode or our discussion, and I'm sure you would have a great perspective on this since you talk to a lot of different organizations, but what is the most common opportunity you see for organizations to improve talent development? Hmm. 
I, I, I think I would come back to that data piece, you know, is, is really yeah. not just saying like, what was our throughput, but what was our, what was our true um, success rate? And, and part of that is let's define our success. What does success look like? What do we, what are we actually looking mm-hmm. to do in what ways are we trying mm-hmm. to move the needle? And then think about how do we measure those things? And um, I, I think that I don't believe that maybe all of those can be, um, you know, um, we've, all those data points can come necessarily from the learning realm, but at least more than the few or zero that they're getting now. Uh, and I think that mm-hmm. if, if people are more intentional about the ways we want to improve performance or retention or whatever it is, um, call those out and, and work backwards from those from a learning standpoint, I think there's a lot more um, that, that there's a lot that companies could gain from doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. I thought I thought this was a great discussion. I think I'm sure it gave cool. a little bit of a perspective. You know, learning technology is one of those things that, you know, honestly, I, I really love talking about it, but I think a lot of people uh, don't necessarily have time to think about it or they don't get into the nitty gritty because IT handles yeah. their their systems or something like yeah. that. But it really is, it's, it's an enabler for what we do. So I'm appreciative of you taking the time today. I'm really excited about the work you and, and Learn to Win are doing to kind of advance this front of getting thank us you. thinking yeah. about this technology a little bit better. Um, yeah. So thank you again so much and have a great rest of your day. You got it. Thanks, Matt. Cheers, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you liked the discussion, make sure to hit like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. As a reminder, if your team is struggling keeping up with the training development demands of your organization, we want to help. Better Everyday Studios is a full-service instructional design team that can help you with everything from ideation to actual content creation and delivery. Please reach out to us using the link in the episode notes below. Have a great day.